This is Questions of Courage, a podcast from the youth section at the Goetheanum, hosted by Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to Questions of Courage. Today I'd like to speak uh, with young people in mind who are interested in pursuing creative arts and um, who are interested in pursuing maybe uh, art school. They might already be active in, um, in an artistic endeavor or artistic area. And um, that's a very broad group of people. There are so many disciplines of art. Dancers, architects, sculptors, musicians. I'm just going to be speaking today mostly about visual artists and poetry. Um, but I do think that there are some deep universal themes that we'll touch on that hopefully will be meaningful for other artists. And as usual, I'm trying to focus on a intersection related to spirituality. And I'd like to start by just sharing a, a story of a recent trip that I took. I was invited to um, Australia to be part of a youth conference with a new youth group called the Oceanic Youth Circle in the summer. And when I was there, I visited some museums. And when I was going through the museum, I saw a lot of paintings that I hadn't seen before um, because I'm not so familiar with Australian art. And um, I was really struck by how respectful the descriptions of the curators were of the modern artists that were interested in kind of a spiritual dimension of color and a spiritual dimension of form in their work. It was quite a respectful tone in the descriptions of, uh, that were on the gallery wall. Not excessive, but marked. And I was particularly sensitive to that. I studied so over 20 years ago at a art school and college that was explicitly dedicated to contemplative and spiritual approaches to painting and drawing. And over the years, I became aware of how unpopular that was, particularly in um, the last 40, 50 years in many museums and art catalogs and ideas about art. And that's one of the reasons that I really noticed when I was in Australia, the tone of the descriptions on the wall. I would like to talk today about uh, the museums and what val is valued as art and how one might come to value spiritual-oriented art. And also how this valuation could be capricious, how it could change from one year to the next in today's atmosphere. And just to do so by referring to some of the, the artists and artworks from recent years and also the last century. And I'd like to start just by characterizing kind of base level, common and conventional idea of what a work of art is. And now, of course, I'm talking about like you grow up in the United States or you grow up in Europe, grow up in many parts of the world. Um, you might think of a work of art as something which is just a very unique object. An object that has been shaped 
by a craftsperson with amazing capacities or unusual capacities. And this could be technical. It could be quite a technical capacities that, however, are difficult to develop. Or it could be a kind of style or genius that expresses a certain quality, presence, and somehow is tied up in a physical object. And in both cases, because these capacities are so unusual uh, or hard to come by, um, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, but this is, is an object that kind of stands out. Um, you might also really experience something meaningful in relationship to the object. But kind of on the most superficial level, conventionally we think about art in, in that kind of way. And to the point where people who have money and they want to save it and they don't want it to be subject to inflation, they want to make an investment, they'll buy artwork, they'll buy a Picasso or a Cezanne, um, in order to, you know, have an object whose value is stable. And they might not even like the artwork, of course. So this is a kind of conventional view of art. And I, I want to just talk a little bit about some artists who have really also brought this weird way of looking at art into question and kind of been creative with this idea of art in a way. Banksy is an example, who is one of the most well-known artists today. Don't necessarily really know who he is. But um, just last week, there was a work of art that was auctioned for $25 million by Banksy. Now, Banksy has done a lot of work um, as a graffiti artist and uh, just doing kind of paintings on walls and uh, in um, buildings, uh, really illegal things, and um, become quite famous for it. A lot of social political commentary in his work, but also humor. And uh, remarkably, I think it was like 2018, a work of art came up at auction. And uh, it was this framed work of art of Banksy which is very unusual because um, he's kind of an outsider and a crit critic of the main art scene. And when the artwork was sold, which was, I think, for over a million dollars, suddenly it started to move. It was being scrolled down, and there was a paper shredder in the frame, and the art started going through the paper shredder. And you might think, oh no, people would like freak out about this, you know, oh no, his artwork is being shredded. And yet the person that bought the artwork was quite satisfied having been part of a moment in art history and owning this object, not really being so attached to the, the actual picture. And sure enough, this is the same artwork that sold for 25 million last week. Banksy did another kind of like complimentary uh, experiment. He was given a um, kind of residency in New York City. And he, part of that was setting up a vendor table outside one of the big museums in New York City and having this person sell original Banksy art, not Banksy himself, but um, just selling Banksy paintings. 
and people didn't know they were originals and so they were haggling and they were getting these original Banksy's for 40 or 50 bucks and didn't know what they were getting. And um, you might also know uh, the movie that Banksy made called Exit Through the Gift Shop, which as the title suggests, is a kind of examination of the interplay of commercialism and um, kind of fashion and art and the gift shops at the exit of every museum, a major museum that we're all familiar with. And it is a truly hilarious movie. Um, but even if you haven't seen the movie, you can take these two examples that I've mentioned. One of an artwork that's shredded when it's sold at an art auction. And the other one of a canvas that's sold on the street. One sells for a million and then more recently 25 million. And the other one for 50. And there's just this obvious feeling of like, if you can't tell the difference, or if it doesn't matter if it's destroyed, what is the art? What is the meaning of the art? Is art just a black box that you can put in the context of a museum, that you can put in the context of an art auction, and then it gets its meaning and its value for people and for society? And I think it's fair to say, yes, that is one of the uh, re realities of contemporary art and the art market, and the world of the museums. This is one of the reasons why young people who are interested in the kind of open atmosphere related to spirituality and art right now should not think that that's going to last. It could be a capricious moment. It could change very quickly. And, um, of course, this is not a question that is new. Um, but there's another funny example I saw in the news uh, last month, there's a Danish artist by the name of Hanning who was commissioned to like do a work on income inequality at a museum where he uses actual money bills, so paper bills, to demonstrate something related to income inequality. And he was given the money by the reserves of the museum. So the museum gave the money as a material for him to make this physical work of art. When he delivered the work of art, however, he just delivered frames and the titles were Take the Money and Run, and he refused to give the money back. And now, this whole thing is a part of the artwork. And on the radio, he said, the work is that I have taken their money. It's not theft. It is breach of contract, and breach of contract is part of the work. I encourage other people who have working conditions as miserable as mine to do the same if they're sitting in some shitty job and not getting paid and are actually being asked to pay money to go to work, then grab what you can and beat it. So here as well, there's a social political um, dimension, which at the same time, it could be art. And this is going to go to court, evidently, so there's going to be lawyers arguing. Well, is this art? Was breach of contract art? Was the fact that he stole money art? Um, is art a black box like this? The conventional art object is really kind of coming apart. You know, I mean, it could be a shredded piece of paper. Um, 
It could be empty frames, possibly, or the idea behind a stealing. And if you go back 100 years to uh, Marcel Duchamp, maybe the most famous example of this, when he took a urinal and submitted it for exhibition, he turned, put it on its back, signed R. Mutt, and um, suggested that he had long appreciated in an artist's statement the sculptural form of his work and thought it should be put on display. So, this kind of coming apart of the conventional work of art, um, there's still this kind of value around it, and yet it's not clear that it has anything to do with workmanship or meaning and genius. There's a lot of what seems like capriciousness connected to it. And um, Julian Stalabras, who wrote a very short introduction to contemporary art for the, the Oxford series, um, he connects art and the creation, free creation of objects that aren't useful, like paintings or, um, you know, empty frames even that are just there for kind of aesthetic observation. He connects them to free market capitalism. And he suggests, and I'm not going to do justice to his argument here, but I just want to let y'all know, some of you who are going to study art, you know, this is the kind of thing, for instance, 20 years ago that you would very surely read about, that free artistic expression needs to be eliminated if social inequality and social justice is to be attained. That we actually have to eliminate use, the useless fetishization of objects. So art, artistic objects that are created that don't have clear use for human life. So expressive objects, uh, objects of veneration in that sense. And um, yeah, so this is something that 20 years ago, of course, if you compare it to the mood that I met at the Australian Museum, very different mood if we read Stalabras. But it's easy to get um, confused and to lose sight of something really important. I'd like to speak about another artist who also, in a way, suggests that anything can be art, and yet whose whole life and creativity is just so radically different from um, the position, for instance, that Stalabras takes or many um, kind of more communist or uh, Marxian um, materialistic orientations that critique art uh, can be. And I'd like to mostly just share quotes. I'll tell you a little bit about her and then I'd like to share quotes from her life and work. The conventional object of art is coming apart from Mary Carolyn Richards too. She was in the famous Black Mountain College faculty in the 50s, and along with the likes of Merce Cunningham, Joseph Alpers, John Cage, Buckminster Fuller, others. And she was a poet. This is where she met ceramics. She went on to write centering, became a very well-known writer and author, and to be connected with many independent colleges and folk schools. And in some ways, one voice of the counterculture for renewal and higher education in the 1960s. 
she writes, anything can be poetry. And that in her life, um, quote, I have lived my life close to certain impulses in contemporary art. The music of the single sound, the composition of silence, the proliferating of galaxies. No ideas but in things. Garbage art, sculpture out of mashed automobiles, paintings out of Coke bottles, soiled shirts, window blinds, coat hangers, paintings made out of dirt, meant to look like dirt, to consecrate the dirt, and art which consecrates the discard. A choreography of making breakfast, summoning attention, drawing the gaze in, and into the wonder comes a kind of high mirth, a release of joy in the form. Here, too, in Mary Carolyn Richards' description, she writes about being a part of this movement where the appreciation of form is not limited to these objects of craftsmanship and genius, but coat hangers, the movements that are involved in making breakfast. Everything seems to be able to be focused on and with the right attitude to start to reveal something that she says, into the wonder comes a kind of high mirth, a release of joy in the form. And she writes further, she was very familiar with um, Marxist aesthetic theory and critiques like those of Julian Stalabras, who I've just spoken briefly about from the critical school. Um, but she writes, I feel there is another step and yet another. This eye that opens upon the rejected may be unopened to other vision. Art creates a bridge between being and embodiment. What are pigments and gestures? The ephemera of painting. Surely, when we look at a painting, we are not seeing the paint merely. We are seeing something that is not there visibly but which enters our perception through the eye. Paintings fade, peel, dirty, tear, and rot. Pots break. Art in its material aspects is as impermanent as breath. But meanwhile, what has been its task to perpetuate the supersensory awareness of humankind? I'm going to read the last two sentences again. But meanwhile, what has been its task to perpetuate the supersensory awareness of humankind? So here she looks at art as ephemera. She looks at kind of impermanence of art and the physicality of it as actually not its most meaningful attribute, but that it, she calls it as impermanent as breath. And that when art comes and goes, what stays in its wake is the fact that people have become more sensitive to a spiritual or supersensory awareness of existence. 
that this, this is happening through art. And also all of the discarded art that is undermining the conventional idea of art. Even in the unconventional artwork of the last century, she's experiencing this when she says also anything can be art. In centering the same book, she writes bluntly, quote, different bodies of energy live within every person. Motives, for example, are as substantial as muscles. They'll form the different elements and may indeed act within them. These bodies lie within each other, through each other, like transparencies, like currents of form, suggested in certain paintings and photographs by movements of water and air. The man who sees clearly can see through the clairvoyant. The fact that I want to stress here is that one's inner life, one's spirit, is as specific, as palpable, immaterial as the shape of one's hair. And here, M.C. Richards reveals this bigger attitude. You know, it's not just an attitude that is sensing in the colors like the vivacious liveliness of many yellows that brings alertness to it to us, can have a certain radiance and joy that can also have a focus, that can have a velocity to it, that can um, in a certain way give us wings, that can give us some kind of feeling of quickness and attentiveness. Um, that this dimension, for instance, that just through looking at yellow, we might connect with, we might feel coming into us in a way, and which is so different, for instance, than looking at an indigo or a Prussian blue, for instance. That these spiritual dimensions, that this kind of supersensory awareness, this isn't only for materiality and for artworks, that this is also something that we start to be able to sense in people that people actually have these super sensible dimensions to them and, and that art in a way helps us to become more aware and more sensitive to those, that art is a kind of training for us or a way that we awaken to a spiritual dimension of ourselves and of one another. So that she says... One's inner life, one's spirit, is as specific, as palpable and material as the shape of one's hair. And I think it's good to try to take her seriously here, that in being in one another's presence and paying attention to one another's motives, that there would be a kind of dimension, um, not unlike an artistic sensitivity, to the specificity of one's spirit, of the other person's spirit. And one might not be able to take a hold of it with one's hands, but in one's awareness and in one's heart, there is a place where one can perceive it, can behold it, can appreciate it. And that this is a kind of spiritual attitude in art. This is an orientation, a spiritual orientation in art. And interestingly enough, it's very different from older spiritual orientations in art. 
that might be first and foremost constituted by dogmas, by the dogma and theology of the church or of any spiritual tradition and belief. But instead, this is awakening out of a kind of feeling that the Spirit is speaking directly out of perception. Mary Carolyn Richards believed that this was something new that was happening. And she writes, quote, It seems that a new age is seeking birth. Much in the new birth will be rebirth of ancient wisdom. Much will be still in the proportions of infancy. We are poems in the making, logos at work. And here she's used new age, that much maligned term. And at the same time, she's indicated that we should be careful with our criticisms. That much will be in the proportions of infancy, she says. <clears throat> she was one of the spokespeople for the countercultural movement of the 60s, particularly with her uh, famous book, Centering. And um, much in the counterculture had a tragic end, particularly through the influence of drugs, but also commercialism and kind of superficiality. But we should also recognize what is really of value. And I think she points towards it here. What I've tried to characterize, I've tried to characterize that, you know, the last hundred years, if you're interested in art, one of the things that you can see is conventional tradition and art are kind of coming apart. And if you're a young person today and interested in becoming active as an artist, of course, you have the whole technological revolutions which are at work in all the fields, digital revolution, which is unfolding, 3D printing, apps for drawing and painting, um, programs for designing buildings. But there's these deeper questions as well that you have to come to terms with. And when we see the conventional art object in many ways coming apart, we should be able to differentiate between a rejection of the tradition, the dead tradition, which also is a kind of reduction of the human spirit. And that's what we find in the writings of the likes of Julian Stalabras. And many materialistic thinkers who are inspired by the Frankfurt School and going back further to Karl Marx. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it, but you might want to look into it if you're going to go to art school today. On the other hand, there were many artists who participated in this. Mary Carolyn Richards, I've just chosen as one, who felt that in abandoning the conventional art object, even in simple uh, application of color to canvas or simple sounds and poems that they were in touch with something profoundly artistic and meaningful. Crude painting could be very meaningful. And its value was not just created because it was placed in a museum. So, in a way, I wanted, try, wanted today to try to describe 
what I think is one part of a dilemma if you're a young person interested in pursuing art and you're interested in this kind of orientation towards the spiritual dimensions of art, the spiritual dimensions of the human being, then you have to, maybe you try to find your way between a capitalist art world and market, museums and institutions that don't necessarily have any allegiances but are interested in viewers and what they can sell through their gift shop, which is absolutely a real, a real dynamic in our world today that one cannot close one's eyes to. And on the other side, a rejection of that kind of commercialization of art through a materialism that suggests that art should even be eliminated or illegalized in the interest of social justice. The question I think that many young people can carry in their hearts is how can they cultivate the spiritual and artistic practice and learning about art in a way that can also be brought together with social and political ideals and these I've just actually spoken about in a previous episode on what money can't buy. Um, and I hope that it's clear that I think that the mood around the spirituality of artistic practice that might currently be quite positive, we can't count on it as something that will stay for reasons that are connected with fashion, for reasons that are connected with the market. But the bigger challenges are whether or not we can cultivate and participate in spiritual dimensions of painting, of drawing, of sculpture, of architecture, of movement, of writing, so that they become more and more a part of our experience and a part of our world so that we don't need to argue about them, that they are as self-evident as the rising and the setting of the sun. And this is a kind of call for um, uh, that I think you can hear in Mary Carolyn Richards' many, many books, writings, and her artistic work. Questions of Courage is a project that is a collaboration with the Goethe Annam Communications Team, Goethe Annam TV and The Weekly, the Goethe Anum is not supported by an endowment. It doesn't receive support from um, tax income. It does receive support from thousands and thousands of individuals and foundations and from its programs. And uh, it is really reliant on generosity and enthusiastic uh, support from so many people. And I want to invite you to consider contributing to the Youth Access and Project Fund and if you contribute, you can know your funds will help young people get access to programs, but also to one another, conversations around the spiritual questions that they have and that they're bringing with them. Um, so thank you very much.